0: Evidence and Answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukram. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will once again provide us with a compelling interview with his guest, Dr. Donald Williams. The discussion at hand? C.S. Lewis and his argument from desire. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now
1: here's Pat with his guest, Dr. Donald Williams, with Part 1. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, today we're talking about one of the most beloved writers of modern times, C.S. Lewis c.s lewis may be best known for his work the chronicles of narnia but he was also a great thinker and a defender of the christian faith and today we're going to talk about one of his most powerful arguments for the existence of god and to help us is our guest dr donald williams dr williams received his doctorate in medieval and renaissance literature at the university of georgia in athens is masters of divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School he is uh, the RA 4 scholar there at the Falls College in Georgia and also a professor of English so dr. Williams welcome to evidence and answers
2: good to be with you
1: yes now many of us are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis as the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia but give us a brief bio on C.S. Lewis, especially on how he came to faith in Christ.
2: Yeah, Lewis was born in 1898 in Ireland, and uh, was raised in a nominally Christian home. During his childhood years, uh, probably the biggest event that happened was the death of his mother. He had prayed, he was only nine years old when his mother died, and he prayed very intensely that God would heal her from cancer, But uh, she passed away, and partly as a result of that, Lewis uh, gave up his faith and became an atheist. And so throughout his teenage years, he was an atheist, angry at God. He said later that, uh, I didn't believe that God existed, and I was angry at him for not existing. He was a, uh, a scholar became a professor, uh, well, actually a tutor in English at Magdalen College in Oxford University. And there he met J.R.R. R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, uh, who was a Christian. And uh, Tolkien uh, led him to Christ with some help from a few other people. Uh, Lewis realized that his atheism really had no answers to the basic questions of philosophy and of life, and that his atheism was incapable of explaining his own existence and his own life and his own emotions. He wrote an autobiography called Surprised by Joy in which he talks about how he came to Christ and he would have these experiences of intense longing provoked by the beauties of nature or of literature It kept him from being comfortable in his atheism. He describes himself as as believing in nothing but atoms in motion and caring about nothing but the gods and the great myths. And so there was this complete lack of integration of his intellectual and his emotional life. And when he found Christ, uh, one of the things that uh, he discovered was that that was a cure for this conflict in his own being in his own self. So the argument from desire that we're going to be talking about is one part of the story of how he got there, concluding eventually that atheism had no answers and that the evidence for the resurrection of Christ was very strong and that if he accepted Christ as being the Son of God, then it provided a reason for Believing in the value of all the things that he had loved throughout his life. Things that his atheism could give no value to at all. So he was a professor of English at Oxford, then later at Cambridge. A uh, beloved author of not only the Narnia books, which is what he's most remembered for, but also science fiction, poetry, and a number of books of Christian apologetics, such as Mere Christianity Uh, miracles, the problem of pain, and others as well. Probably the most well-known apologist from the middle of the 20th century. uh, Lewis passed away in 1963. He died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot. Oh, wow. And his books have continued uh, to sell and be popular and help people, oh, for more than 50 years now since then.
1: Wow, yeah. You know, you mentioned that he was friends with J.R. Tolkien, the writer of the Lord of the Rings. So to deviate a little bit, a lot of people didn't know Tolkien was a believer in Christ and that through uh, Lord of the Rings, he was also presenting a gospel message. Uh, tell us a little bit about how Tolkien did that in his novel. A lot of people don't see it.
2: Well, there are a number of themes that uh, are that resonate with a biblical worldview But Tolkien kept it really kind of in the background, in The Lord of the Rings. You realize uh, how biblical the whole framework is when you read the Silmarillion, because in the first chapter of the Silmarillion is the creation story of Middle-earth. And you realize that Middle-earth has a very explicitly theistic worldview behind it. Uh, In the beginning there was Iluvatar, the One, and there were the children of Luvatar, which basically correspond to the angels. And Luvatar propounded a great theme of music and asked the children of Luvatar to join in. And they were all adding their notes of harmony to this uh, wonderful composition. But then Melkor, who is the Satan figure, decided that uh, he would rather sing his own music. And so he departed. From the symphony and introduced discord and disharmony and this this loud ugly braying sound and then the children of Iluvatar became divided some of them trying to sing with Melkor, others trying to sing with Iluvatar until finally Iluvatar introduced a second and a third theme which took the discordant braying notes of Melkor and dovetailed them back into the main theme so that the piece, after all of this conflict in the middle, ends on a great note of of resolution and harmony again. And then he says to the children of Iluvatar, you shall see what you have done, and that music becomes the history of the world. And so you, you have uh, Satan's rebellion depicted metaphorically by the discordant notes of of Melkor and uh, the story that that most people are familiar with. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings happens much later in the history of Middle-earth. Sauron is a servant of Melkor. So the things that you see in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, such as the powerful imagery of darkness and light, such as the role of weakness, you know, it's not by might, not by power, but my my strength, says the Lord, and by God's wisdom. It's so many things that, that come together, and they're hinted at in the Lord of the Rings, but in that creation story of Middle-earth in the Silmarillion, you realize, yes, they actually are there, and they actually are consistent with a biblical worldview. Very interesting moment in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is trying to explain things to Frodo, and he says to Frodo, I can put it no plainer than, than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. And that may be an encouraging thought. Well, my question is, why is that an encouraging thought? And the answer is, if Bilbo was meant to find the ring, there had to be someone there to do the meaning. Meaning is a personal thing, you can't have meaning without a person to mean the meaning. And if that person was capable of working behind the scenes in ways that that Sauron couldn't interfere with, that changes everything because you realize that there is a strong doctrine of providence in Middle-earth that God is at work even when people don't know him by name, God is at work behind the scenes And that is why, the only reason why Frodo's plan of trying to take the ring to the cracks of doom had a chance of succeeding, because Gandalf, who's who's kind of a prophet figure, understood that there was more at work than just the schemes and the power of the men of the West. So, yeah, Tolkien, very, very serious Christian and a serious Christian thinker, and if you're interested in Tolkien, let me recommend my latest book. It's called An Encouraging Thought, the Biblical Worldview in the Writings of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. It's from Christian Publishing House in Cambridge, Ohio. It just came out this year, so just put in Donald Williams and An Encouraging Thought. You'll be able to find it on Amazon. It's probably the easiest way to get mm. it out there in Hawaii.
1: Fantastic. Sounds like a great read. And speaking of that, you know, C.S. Lewis best known for the Chronicles of Narnia series. I mean, that's a creative way to present the Christian message, maybe the most read since uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, I would think. Mm-hmm. Now, Just tell us briefly how he developed that story of the Chronicles.
2: Well, Lewis said that he had these dreams about, that just had these images, and one of them was uh, the Fong carrying an umbrella, who, of course, became Mr. Tumnus. And it was like these images were asking to be part of a story. And as he started trying to tell that story, he said that Aslan came bounding into it and brought with him all of the Christian meaning that's there. What if God had made a world of talking animals as opposed to the world that we know? In a world of talking animals, and suppose God had become incarnate there just as he did in our world, Perhaps he would show up there as the king of beasts, as as a lion. And so Narnia is the story of what might have been if God had made such a world. And, uh, of course, you have in it parallels to the biblical story, such as the atonement at the stone table, uh, the death of Aslan for the sins of Edmund and his resurrection. If you know the biblical story, you will see... The hints of it uh, constantly, you'll be reminded of it in reading the Narnia Chronicles. But like the Lord of the Rings, they're just great adventure stories by themselves. So, yeah, I i uh, read through the Chronicles of Narnia every couple of years, and I'll just break down into tears at how beautiful it is, usually at a different place that I'm not expecting that to happen, and it just hits you. There's really nothing quite like it yeah the whole world of literature.
1: yeah and you know it's amazing how many non-christians read it and don't realize you know the gospel message is there
2: some of them don't and some yeah. of them do yeah uh,
1: and that that's it mm-hmm.
2: i know at least a couple of people who were saved by yeah, reading so do i
1: Guardian. yeah and so and that it happens yeah so the gospel can be presented in many creative ways and mm. i think c.s lewis Tolkien and others did a great job. John Bunyan did a great job in illustrating how you can do it through fiction. Yes, they did. Oh, yes. And if you
2: haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, don't be intimidated by the fact that it's from the 17th century and it has King James English in it. Bunyan writes so simply and so clearly that you will be able to read that and enjoy it without any problem whatsoever. As you said, it's the... Greatest story of that kind up until the Narnia books themselves came along
1: well You know C.S. Lewis became a great thinker and scholar well He always was but a great defender of the Christian faith and he presented some powerful Arguments defending Christianity the trilemma the moral argument and the argument from reason But you say the most characteristic argument may be the one people know least about the argument from desire But before we go into the argument from desire, let's briefly go through the first three that you mentioned, the the trilemma argument. Just briefly explain that one for us. That's a very famous one.
2: Yeah, Lewis in Mere Christianity is looking at Christ and asking, what should we believe about Christ? And he said, logically, there's, there's only three possibilities. If Christ claimed to be the Son of God, if he claimed to be God incarnate in human flesh, if he said... Before Abraham was, I am, making himself equal to the Father, then there are only three logical possibilities. Either he's telling the truth, or he's lying, or he's crazy. If you think you're God and you're not, you actually think you're God and you're not, that's pretty much the definition of insane. And so as you're looking at Jesus, the way he's presented in the Gospels, and you read Sermon on the Mount, you read the things that Jesus said, it seems very clear that he's not insane. And it seems very clear that how is the, the person who is perhaps the greatest moral teacher in the history of the world, how is he a liar? And if you can't believe that he's insane and you can't believe that he's lying, then logically you're forced to deal with the idea that he's telling the truth. What the trilemma does it it takes the easy out that most non-believers want to take everybody wants to think say oh Jesus was a great man he was a great moral teacher a great prophet they just don't want to say he's God but you can't do that because if he's not who he said he was then he's either lying or he's insane in neither case is he a great moral teacher so it kind of pushes the skeptic into a corner where the easy outs you know well, we'll just accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not as God. The easy outs are removed, and you are left confronted with the claims of Christ in a way that really forces you to take them seriously and deal with them.
1: Yes, that trilemma argument is a great one. I use it all the time on the university campuses, and it really gets people thinking that's a mm-hmm. yeah, that's a powerful uh presentation he made there. The other one he's really famous for is the moral argument. Uh, explain that one to us a little bit.
2: That's yeah, also from Mere Christianity. Lewis observes, he starts out in Mere Christianity from ground zero. He's not assuming anything. He's just saying, let's let's look at people and observe the way they act and what they say. And we notice when we do that, that people seem to have this consciousness or this sense of there being a moral law that they're accountable to. Some people claim that they don't believe in the moral law, but they'll go back on that claim in a second if you try to knock them in the head and steal their wallet, you know, that's just wrong. So people have this awareness that there is a moral law that they're accountable to, where does this come from? People wanna say, well, it's just something we learned from our parents, or it's just some kind of instinct that evolved, and, or it's just a custom as part of our culture. And Lewis takes each of these explanations and knocks it down, shows that they don't really explain what this phenomenon is that we're dealing with. And so he argues that the best explanation for the existence of a universal moral law is that there is a moral lawgiver it points to the existence of God. It's a really useful argument, I think, for two reasons. Number one is it's asking you to look inside yourself, and if you do so honestly, you will have to admit, yes, this moral law is there asking you to obey it, and no, you don't obey it perfectly. And so it's not only giving us a reason why belief in God makes sense, But it's also highlighting our need, and that can point us then to the cross as the answer to that need, that that we're under this moral law, but we don't keep it very well. And that, of course, is the end place where every apologetic argument needs to end up, is it needs to leave us at the foot of the cross.
1: Yes, and that's another powerful argument that I constantly use. I remember sitting down and having dinner with a well-known apologist, uh, Ravi Zacharias. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, almost every one of his messages are the moral argument, you know, mm-hmm. and I sat down with him and I said, man, I didn't believe in reincarnation, but man, you make me really question because you're the reincarnation of C.S. Lewis, you know? <laughs> and, and, and he uh, said...
2: Ravi was one of my yeah. classmates at oh, Trinity. really? Wow. Yeah.
1: And he said, well, that's Because he finds that argument unbeatable. Oh yeah? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he said that argument's unbeatable. That's why, you know? It's a powerful (laughs) argument. Well, how about that last one, the argument from reason?
2: That one I find really interesting. That's from Lewis's book Miracles, a book in which he tries to support the idea that, that it's rational to believe in miracles. And Lewis says, Well, okay, let's suppose That naturalism is true, that nothing exists except matter, energy, time, and chance. There is no God. The universe is just impersonal matter operating by impersonal natural laws. If that were so, then it follows that the thoughts in your head are really just chemical reactions. You know, the atoms in your head happen to be in the particular configuration they're in because this is how they bumped into each other and their entire history from the Big Bang puts them in your head in the form of these particular thoughts. So if naturalism is true, then you lose your justification for believing in naturalism because if my thoughts are simply the chemical reactions taking place by physical uh, determinism in my head, and I disbelieve in God, and your thoughts, believing in God, are just chemical reactions in your head, what possible reason could we have for preferring one set of chemical reactions over another Just nature has produced both of them? So you can't say that atheism is true if you're an atheist, because if you're an atheist, you've lost the whole concept of truth as... as something you can even deal with. You can't say, I think atheism is... You just have to say, these thoughts are occurring. Because everything is happening based on the impersonal and inevitable working out the laws of physics. And that applies to all your thoughts. It applies to all the thoughts of the person who disagrees with you. Who's going to judge between these thoughts? Another person whose thoughts also are the inevitable workings out of the laws of chemistry and physics inside his head, not beliefs that he has chosen or that he has seen to be true based on reason. So naturalism then self-destructs. It destroys itself. The natural I mean, naturalism, I suppose, could be true, but the naturalist can't assert that it's true. He can't claim that it's true because he has given up his right to talk about truth so if you can't say that naturalism is true but you can say that it's false if God exists then there is a reason for believing in truths other than just the fact that they happen to be the way the chemistry in our brains worked out so the atheist ground is cut out from under him if atheism is true we can no longer say that atheism is true The Christian can make truth claims about God without self-contradiction. The atheist cannot. And so that that puts the atheist in a rather difficult position.
1: Yeah, so those are three powerful arguments that C.S. Lewis presented and still very relevant for today. Absolutely. Now, you say his most characteristic argument may be the argument from desire, and it's briefly summarized in that famous sentence that he wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you say...
2: let's actually back up a couple of sentences from there, because if we do, it'll make the force of that argument, I think, a lot more clear. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And so you can't find a desire that doesn't have an object. Every desire you list, and that list could go on and on and on, and, you know, if we are created with a desire for something, it doesn't prove we're going to get that thing, but it does pretty much prove that such a thing exists.
0: Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak to your church, Bible study, or perhaps even at a conference, please give him a call. That's area code 808-483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence & Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence & Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website, That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.